How much is enough? It's a good question, right? How much money is enough? How much stuff is enough? How much house or car is enough? And my guess is that we wouldn't all answer with exactly the same number if we're talking about money or the exact amount of square feet if we're talking about a house or the car if we're talking about automobiles. But our answer would still probably be similar because most of us would say just a little more than I have today, right? To make us feel secure, we'd like a little bit more money in the bank. To make us feel sort of content, we'd like more stuff in the house or maybe more house to put the stuff in or a little nicer car to drive around in. All those ways we would really like to have a little more. And that's sort of what we're thinking about in this series, that our culture keeps calling us to more. That if we had more, we'd feel more secure and we would be happier people and it would represent that somehow we've been successful in this life. And in this series, we're sort of battling against that, really that lie that our culture tells us, this mindset of more. And we're thinking about the ways that God has given us more than we ask or imagine. And as we do that, it's sort of an antidote for the way that the culture thinks. So what about you? How about a little bit more? You know, my thinking is at times, you know, I know that God has blessed me in all kinds of ways, right? I mean, physically, I could list the blessings all day long, but it could go on beyond that in the ways that God has blessed me spiritually. And, and then something happens, right? There's some kind of problem. And what do I think about? All the blessings that God has given me? Well, no, of course not. I'm thinking about the problem. So it's sort of like, God, you know, I, I, you've given me eternal life and all that good stuff, but the roof is leaking and that really needs to be solved. So if you could act on that, that'd be awesome. Now, we'd never own up to that thinking, but the truth is that there are so many times in our lives when we really do recognize that God has blessed us in innumerable ways. We cannot count them all and yet there's this one thing going on in our finances or our relationships or our work or whatever it may be. And you're just thinking if God would just deal with that problem, everything would be okay. That's one more form of this more mindset, this more mentality that pulls us away from God. And so today I want us to think about that. I want us to think about what Scripture has to say and look at a principle that I really believe can help us in one more way overcome this idea that more is always better. Now, in this series, we're looking at the Psalms for instruction on this because the Psalms are worship language. I mean, they take us to God and they give us words for worship. They show us how to worship. So a different Psalm every week. And last week we talked about Psalm 34. Today, in just a minute, we're going to open our Bibles up to Psalm 111, if you'd like to turn there with me. So we talked about the fact that the Psalms are used in all different kinds of ways. There are different purposes for various psalms. Sometimes it is to be used in a procession. Sometimes it's to be used to talk about the king and the way that he serves God. Sometimes it's a personal cry for help. And then, like today's psalm, it seems that this is really to be used in a setting much like this. A worship assembly. This psalm is designed to be read by a worship leader in a worship assembly so the people would have language to worship God, okay? But here's what's interesting about this psalm, and one of the reasons that I really like it, is a lot of times 
Psalms will have one primary central theme. Nothing wrong with that, right? It leads us to God or calls something from God because we are in need, and that's all good. But this psalm is, is sort of unique because it ties together multiple streams that run all the way through the Old Testament that help us understand who God is and what God is doing. And it gives us worship language that spans all of those streams in just 10 verses. So I want us to think about those 10 verses today and help us see what the psalmist is saying about this God that we worship. Now, it begins with just a call to praise God. So Psalm 111, verse 1, praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. Now, my guess is that most of you would say, you know, I really don't know any ancient Hebrew, and I don't know a lot either, okay? But you know at least one word, even if you don't remember that you know it, and the word is hallelujah. You probably heard that word your whole life, right? That's a Hebrew word, and it means something very simple. It's right at the beginning of this psalm. We translate it into three words into English, praise the Lord, but that's exactly what hallelujah means. Maybe you wondered what that meant. You know, it was some kind of word of praise, but it simply means praise Yahweh, the personal name for God that we talked about last week that represents the creator God, the God of Israel, the God who took them out of slavery and made them into a people. So praise Yahweh, praise the Lord, hallelujah. That's where he opens up. And then he says, I'm going to praise God with everything I've got. I'm not holding anything back. I'm going to give God everything I've got in praise. And then he begins to talk about why he's praising God some reasons for praise. And again, I see at least three streams that really run all the way through the Old Testament that show up in this one psalm. So it begins here in verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, of Yahweh. They are pondered by all who delight in him. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. So the psalmist begins by saying, we're going to talk about the mighty acts of God. We're going to talk about what God has done. And we see this language of the mighty acts of God. It really runs through the Old Testament or is referred to in other ways. That God is a powerful God who has been at work in human history. And he's been at work for a reason to bring salvation to his people. So God's mighty acts that are the salvation history that we see running from Genesis all the way through Malachi, and then really is picked up in the New Testament as well. So the psalmist wants to praise God for his mighty acts that have brought salvation to the people of Israel. Great are the works of the Lord. And we delight in them when we think about them. When we review what God has done, it gives us joy to think about this great God that we worship. That's what the psalmist is saying to the people of Israel. Then we find this in verse 4. I think this is interesting as well, especially in the context of what we just read. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. So all the stuff that we just talked about in 2 and 3, he brings that back to his people. His people remember this. The Lord, Yahweh, is gracious and compassionate. Now at the end of verse 3, he's talking about the righteousness of God. 
So these mighty acts of God include God acting for what is right and true and just. We have a righteous God, okay? We know that. A God who is pure and holy and the God who expects his people to follow him in purity and holiness and righteousness. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but the point is this is a holy, righteous God. But then the psalmist also says he is gracious and compassionate. Now, when we hear that we have a holy, righteous, pure God, that can be a little scary because we know we're not holy, righteous, or completely pure. We're just not. We're sinners. Every one of us gathered here today. And that scares us a little bit. But then on the other hand, the psalmist says that God is gracious and compassionate. What I find here is a, is a powerfully complex picture of this mighty God at work in the world. And, and I love that because what it says is God is not just sort of static. God is not just sort of, well, boring, to be honest with you. We can really never plumb the depths of this righteous, pure, holy God who is also compassionate and gracious. This is a God who loves us and is at work in our lives, both in purity and righteousness and in grace and compassion. These things that sometimes are, we find at least in our own lives, hard to fit together. But somehow God does. And so the people of Israel, and then us as Christians, as the church, have been working on understanding this righteous God who offers us grace that we don't deserve. We've been working on that for thousands of years. All the way back to Psalms like this. This picture of God that we get. Verse 5. What has this God done? What are his mighty acts? The psalmist says this. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, having, uh, giving them the lands of other nations. So what has God done? Well, a couple things are mentioned specifically, but I think by mentioning them, he's referring to a lot more. First of all, he feeds those among his people who are righteous, okay? Well, I'm sure, as the psalmist wrote this, people were being fed all over Israel. God took care of them physically. But when ancient Jews heard that God feeds his people, what they immediately thought of was manna in the wilderness, right? We're not talking about God just raising crops and, and people harvesting those crops and eating them. We're talking about miraculous food. In the middle of the desert, there's food on the ground every morning. All you got to do is pick it up. Six days a week, it's there. The seventh day, you gathered enough the day before. Every single day. It's a miracle of God providing food for his people every day for months, years, decades. A miracle every single day. That's the way God provided food for his people. And it reminds them of this whole experience of being called out of slavery in Egypt to become a people and then prepare for what's next, the land, in that wilderness as God purified them. And then we get to that next point, that they're going into the land and God gives them a land. And, and when they hear that, that brings to mind promises of God that go all the way back to Abraham, right? You're going to be a great nation. People won't be able to number. You'll be like the dust. You'll be like the, the stars. However you want to think about it, it's more than you can count. 
and I'm going to make you into a people, and I'm going to give you a land. And that promise of the land came down from Abraham and his descendants through Moses and Joshua as they took the land, and God provided the land for them. So just the mention of these two things that God had done, had done already brought to mind this array of things that God had done for his people to give them a land. You see, this is all about the mighty acts of God to save his people Israel. Because if God didn't do those things, they don't exist as a people. If God didn't feed them in the desert, they starve. If God doesn't give them a land in which to live, they wander around forever until they just disappear. But bringing to mind all the way back to Abraham the promises the release from Egypt, the conquering the land, the kings, the prophets. All that says God is saving you through His mighty acts. So these are the mighty acts of God. What about them? Verse 7, The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. God is at work even now. He's not given up. This lasts forever, the psalmist says. And then we move from this whole big section, which takes up the bulk of the psalm, to a different topic. So we've got the first stream is the mighty acts of God in his salvation history, stretching all the way back to Abraham into what would be the present time for this psalmist. And then in verse 9, the theme changes a little bit. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. And the key word there is covenant. Because a covenant was the way that God chose to relate to his people. Why? Because they understood it. Okay, in the ancient world, they made covenants all the time. A lot of times it was between some kind of overlord, a king or somebody else, and his people. And the covenant was a binding agreement between the two. And the king would say, hey, you're going to be my people. I'm going to provide protection for you. And maybe I'm going to sort of set up, this is the way our culture works. I'm going to be the one in charge. And these are the things that I expect from you. And they would just line them all out, right? And this was the binding agreement. The king was binding himself to the people to care for them. In response, they followed him. Well, that makes sense. And God could use that as a way to explain, this is what I expect from my people. So, this God who is a mighty God, who has mighty acts to save people, relates to his people, stream number two, in terms of a covenant. And that goes all the way back to Adam. Adam made a covenant. Uh, God made a covenant with Adam. God makes a covenant with Noah. God makes a covenant with Abraham. God renews that covenant with Jacob. God makes a covenant with Moses and the people. And over and over, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And these are the things I'm going to do for you. And this is what I expect of you. And in fact, the whole law is about that. The expectations of God for his people. And it goes on and on. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and other books are filled with that. All language of covenant. And the psalmist is praising God for this relationship that he has established with his people by binding himself to them. And saying, they are going to be my people. 
And because God has been willing to do that, he is worthy of praise. He's worthy of praise for his mighty acts of salvation. He's worthy of praise for creating a relationship with his people through a covenant. And then finally, verse 10, the the third stream that runs through the Old Testament comes to light in this psalm. The fear of Yahweh, the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have a good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. There's a couple words that are important in that verse. The first is fear. And we hear that and go, okay, am I supposed to be afraid of God? Am I supposed to be scared of God? Is that what the psalmist is saying? And I don't really believe that's the point. The point is, we should hold God in his proper place. We should be in awe of God. Because he is such a mighty, powerful God, we should be in awe of him and give him proper respect. That's how they understood the fear of the Lord. And then the second word is wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if we look at the Old Testament, there are streams that run all the way through. The mighty acts of God... God calling his people into a binding covenant where he is bound to them and cares for them. And then third, wisdom. In fact, we have books of the Old Testament that we call wisdom literature, right? Proverbs is one. Ecclesiastes is one. Even Psalms is sometimes called wisdom literature. And we have a book in the New Testament, the book of James, which in some ways parallels that and is in some ways wisdom literature as well. And the whole point is these books and then parts of many other books in the Bible say this is how life works. Right? This is how you want to work life. And the basic idea is just what this verse says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding, which is a parallel word for wisdom. So if you want to be wise, if you want to understand how life works, the best way to approach life is really simple. Do what God says. And so we've got all these laws. 613 laws in the Old Testament. That are, that are all about God binding himself to his people in a covenant relationship. But over and over, the writers of wisdom in the Old Testament say, if you want to know how life works, if you want to know the best life you can live, just do what God says. And that will lead to wisdom. That will be the right life for you. It will be the best life for you. That's stream number three. And the psalmist is saying we worship this God who, if we just begin to trust him and recognize who he is, put him in his proper place, which is above and beyond everything else, and follow his ways, then that's what wisdom is all about. And we can worship him because he's shown us those things and he is calling us into this life. And I think about that, again, I think these Three streams cover most of the themes in the whole Old Testament. 39 books, okay? The mighty acts of God in his salvation history. Uh, The second being, and I'm going to forget it now. (laughs) God providing redemption for his people in his covenant. And then wisdom. So, are we going to 
look at the mighty acts of God? Are we going to relate to God in the covenant in which he's given us? And are we going to follow him in wisdom? And I think about those three. And and where that takes me in this psalm is that the mighty acts of God call us into a relationship. They call us into a relationship with God. God was calling his people, Israel, into a relationship with him. He's saying, listen, look at what I've done. Listen, look at the way I've decided to relate to you. Listen, look at the life I've called you to live. I'm calling you to know me. And I believe that's all still there. It's all still there for Christians. If we look back at Luke 22, we see language that parallels what we read in the psalm. Jesus, in his last meal with his disciples, is preparing that meal, and he says, listen, there's cups, there's bread involved. It all represents what God did when he led his people out of Egypt, and Jesus breathes into it new meaning when he says this. Luke 22, verse 19, and he took bread, this is Jesus, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, and how many times have we heard these words? This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup, you see that word, is the new covenant. The new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus is saying, God is renewing this covenant again. This tradition stretches all the way back to Adam. And as I said, through Noah and Abraham and Moses and the people and now to Jesus. And so in the psalm, God is calling his people into this relationship through his mighty acts. And Jesus is making the same call to us today. Come to me. Look at what I've done. Been to the cross. Been to the grave. And I've come back. And look at what I've called to you, this new covenant in my blood. I promise to be your God, the Son of God, and you will be my people, my body, the church. And if you'll just do what what I called you to do. And it's interesting to me that we find that language in Luke, and we find similar language in Matthew, and we have long stretches in both of those books where we see Jesus teaching, and he he gives us wisdom, how to live life. The same streams that we see at work in Psalm 111 are at work in Jesus in the Gospels. And in both places, these mighty acts of God are calling us into a relationship with him. Now, here's this God who loves you enough that he is calling you into a relationship with him. And he's been at work in his mighty acts all the way through scripture, and we could probably even name some things since then where we've seen the mighty acts of God to bring salvation. And we can think about God's covenant with us, that he has promised to be our God not just now, but for eternity. And we are called to be his people. And we can see the life that God has called us to live in wisdom, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the question is for us, 
Are we going to let the, the problems of this life in front of us, the things that work against any sense of gratefulness and thankfulness that we might have, are we going to allow those things to make us forget this mighty God who is calling us into a relationship with Him? Or are we going to take some time, maybe some time in here, maybe some time when we pray to God quietly or on the road or wherever it is you pray? Say, God, I've got some troubles and I'm going to bring them to you. You ask us to do that. But I'm going to recognize that more than all that stuff, you have invited me into a relationship with you, one that I could never earn or deserve, but is mine to receive. And then we have a choice to make. Which one will you choose? Let's pray together. God, we echo the words of the psalm. And we say, hallelujah. Praise to you because you have blessed us in so many ways. And, and God, we, we as we worship want to recount your mighty acts of salvation. And we want to share in the joy of being in relationship with you. And God, we want to live our lives in a way that pleases you, that, that is right and just and true and just what you've called us to be and to do. Now we give you praise for all that, but we also ask that you would be at work in our lives so that that is the people that we become and the lives that we lead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe today you recognize that that's not the life you've led and it's just open to you and that God is calling you into a relationship through his mighty acts in Jesus, through the covenant that he created as Jesus uh, instituted the Lord's Supper, and then he's shown you the way to live and you're ready to live that life. If you're ready to do that, then make the decision to follow Jesus. We'd love to walk you through the steps of that, of repentance and baptism. Let us know. Come forward as we stand and sing our invitation. Let's stand together.